it, it, yeah, it was very weird. It, it I, I didn't exist. Um, I, I, I was not really an embed somewhere anymore. I was more of a stowaway, but yeah, I, I just kind of existed. Um, so, soldiers drove me where I needed to get, um, went to the PX to go get some blankets and some pillows so that I could sleep because I, 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 I didn't have, yeah, they, they also wouldn't let me stay in the normal billet. Um, cause usually they have transient, um, bedding and, and housing, uh, KBR takes care of that, but they also wouldn't, wouldn't let me do that. Um, <laughs> cause I didn't exist. It, it, it was very, it was very strange, uh, that last week. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello, and welcome to War College. I am your host, Matthew Galt. Uh, we have a special treat for you today. Producer Kevin Nodell is back in the United States. How are you doing, Kevin? Doing okay. How long have you been home now? Um, just just a little over a week now. Currently in my second week of quarantine. Uh, welcome to the quarantine. Um, it didn't. Not a whole lot happened while you were gone, as I'm sure you're aware. Uh, how? Where were you, and how long were you there? Um, uh, I mean, I was in, I was in Iraq, um, I was supposed to be there for just about a month. Um, I was there a little bit longer as circumstances, um, caused, um, I went to Kirkuk, a little bit of time down in Anbar province and Erbil, which is usually my base of operations while I'm, whenever I'm in the country. Right. So what I'm kind of curious, like what were the circumstances when you first got there? Um, when I'm talking about like, what were the COVID-19 circumstances when you first got, when you first got there? When I first got there, yeah. um, when, when I first got there, that was when people were, were just starting to talk about it. Um, well, I mean, we'd been talking about it for a while, but, um, the screening was starting to set up at some of the airports. Um, um, yeah, going going through the airports, you got the the standard questions. Uh, have you been to China? Have you interacted with anybody from China? Um, we were still at that stage. Um, none of the airports had really shut down yet, but people were really starting to exercise a little bit more scrutiny. Um, when I got to Erbil, there were some guys in um, protective gear with um, the little um, eye thermometers who were going around checking all of us didn't seem particularly thorough. I'm not entirely convinced that the guy actually got it in my eye. Um, but you know, I, I was cleared. I, I got to go through, which was, which was good. Um, I was, I was worried they were going to see me cough cause I have allergies. Uh, it was that time of year and, um, I'd been coughing a little bit on the way in. I was like, I'm going to get, I'm going to get detained. <laughs> um, but I didn't, um, made it through had more allergies um, inside um, there. Things were not that bad yet. Um, there, there were a few people who were starting to stockpile a few people who were getting a little bit nervous. It was 
a few days after I got there that a bunch of new regulations came down on restaurants. Um, everybody was wearing gloves, lots of people wearing masks. Um, and then while I was embedded, that was when all the restaurants and everything got shut down. So the, like the first signs of, um, of like, um, it, it wasn't quite a lockdown at that point yet. Um, and when I got back to Urbil, there were still people moving around, but, but nothing was open. All right. And you were there at the, at the behest of Black Rifle Coffee Company, right? Who are you embedded with? What was the, the story that you were chasing? Yeah. Well, speci- well specifically, uh, Coffee or Die magazine, which is published by Black Rifle Coffee Company, but want to make a little bit of a distinction there because it's an actual, journalistic outlet which is editorially independent from from its mothership okay um just, just something that i think people should should understand because i also because i'm not an employee of uh of black rifle coffee company um but um i, I mean while i was there it, it wasn't necessarily anything super specific a lot of it was follow-up from when i was there uh the last time um some things happened while I was gone. Um, Soleimani got killed. Um, missiles hit Al-Assad. Um, the unit that I had been covering, the, the, the first striker brigade from the 25th infantry division had experienced a lot of new, new things. Um, when I, when I started covering their deployment, it was, the idea was to cover a, a typical deployment by a conventional um, unit. Um, they have not had a particularly typical deployment at this point uh, between the Turkish invasion of Syria, um, the the missile attacks on Al-Assad, the protests raging across Iraq through much of their deployment, um, and now a global pandemic. Uh, they've had a, a very unstandard deployment at this point. Right. Well, I keep thinking about how with the COVID news here in the States, um, and that's pretty much, I don't know kind of what your news consumption was when you were over there, but it, and that's all we're talking about right now with, with a little spice of uh, election on top of it, but it's like mostly COVID-19, right? And there's all this stuff happening that we're not paying attention to. Oh, what are we missing in Iraq? Well, I mean, it, the, the news consumption while we were there, um, or sorry, well, while I was there, rather, it, it once the COVID thing got big, that was most of the news consumption, and that it, that really has had an effect on on everything, uh, including what's happening over there. Um, and I actually think that it plays a big role in the way that some of the hostilities are changing. I, I don't think that you can neatly decouple this pandemic from the developments over there, given that a lot of these developments involve Iran, which, which is one of the countries that's been hardest hit. Um, and, and I think when they are in moments of crisis um, domestically, just my personal analysis, that's when they look to, to find external crises to, to get their people on board with, with that sort of thing. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure that it's, working particularly well uh, this time around, but it's something that in my opinion really seems to be part of their playbook. 
what are they doing and why don't you think it's working very well? I mean, while, while I was there um, at K1 in Kirkuk, uh, two Marine Special Operations uh, Raiders died um, in the mountains outside of uh, Mockmore. Um, Mountains that I'd actually been to. Uh, I, I think we discussed that uh, previously when yeah. I was with the Peshmerga and we were uh, we were standing over ISIS and tunnels. Well, yes. uh, the, the, yeah. Well, uh, the, the Marines and some local forces went into some of those tunnels uh, while while I was down in Kirkuk. Um, uh, two Marines died during that operation. Uh, I believe what, what we know now it was about a it was about a six hour firefight engagement that they kind of got locked into. They had to call in reinforcements to, to extract casualties. Um, uh, I believe the information that's kind of come out about it was uh, they had to call in actually Delta force to help with the extraction. Um, and also dur- during that, there was a little bit of other drama when I was down at K one, um, the, the base down in Kirkuk that I guess was where they actually did, um, that that became part of the extraction. Um, some Peshmerga fighters came came into the base uh, the night of the attack, um, which is not usual uh, down there. Uh, the Peshmerga and the Iraqi army fought a pretty bitter battle over some of the disputed territories in 2017. So the Peshmerga being in Kirkuk, which is controlled by the Iraqi army, was a was a fairly big deal. And uh, the understanding that I have now from talking to some people about what happened that night was that uh, they were assisting with the extraction of those Marines. Uh, so even as the as and this is at a time when we were definitely talking about COVID, uh, Kirkuk is actually the, pl- the first place where um, Iraqi citizens were diagnosed with with the virus. Um, it, it wasn't the first place where they had places of COVID. It was um, it was the first place where Iraqis had COVID. Uh, the first place in Iraq where there was COVID was um, was I believe Najaf. I, I, I believe it was an Iranian an Iranian college student who was there doing some sort of studying. Um, ended up having it down there. Uh, th- there's obviously been uh, considerably more cases since then. Um, Iraq, like uh, like everywhere else, is ex- experiencing some pretty significant lockdowns. Um, but uh, it, some of that came later. It, it's it, it was interesting to see this thing gradually unfold. From most mostly, I was in military bases uh, throughout most of it, and which is a very insular environment. So it, it was very much. Um, a feeling of man, what's going on out there? Um, and even and even uh, hearing the news back home, that just a lot of hearing the soldiers gradually work through it while I was working through it. You know, hearing you know like like what's real, what's what's bullshit? Um, how nervous should we really be about this? Is it just the flu? Is this something worse? What's what's happening? Um, What's it like to go through that when you're on a military base in Iraq and like how are, and I'm particularly interested in like kind of the range of reactions from the soldiers that you knew. Yeah. Well, and I think, and for, as it, as it is, I think it's been for everyone else. Uh, the reactions have changed over time as more information has become available and as more things develop. 
Um, cause I mean, also for a lot of them, they're, they're young, they're fit. Most of them are probably not particularly high risk Though We've also learned with, um, with the Roosevelt, I believe that the crew has its first fatality. So, yeah, it uh, it just did, I think today, right? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Uh, it was that it was, to, it was this morning or, or yesterday, but, um, but uh, yeah, obviously people are not immune. Um, you know, that's, that's not how, how this works, but, and, and also I think it, it, in particular for, for the people I was talking to, uh, they're, they're, they're near what's supposed to be their deployment. They've been gone and they had, and a lot of them had, you know, plans for when they get home. I, I remember after a patrol with, um, with some of the Marines that I was with, um, down in Anbar, it, it's just a perimeter patrol of the base, and um, and I think we'll get to that. That's that's about all they're doing. It's not like anybody was getting particularly far outside the wire, but um, their company commander told the Marines, you know, like if you had um, plans or or tickets or uh, hotel reservations, you you, you probably want to get in touch with those those companies and, uh, and and see what you can get refunded. I hope you got the the travelers insurance. Uh, cause it's not looking like that's going to happen. So, I mean, it was, so it's kind of like, again, just a broad kind of spectrum of reactions, just like it is here, essentially. Um, how seriously was leadership taking it there? How fast? Cause you know, we hear these, we kind of hear these horror stories here about the Roosevelt being, you know, the biggest one, right? Yeah, so do, I, they, do they have enough masks? Do they have PPE? Like, what's going on there? Well, I don't. I, I think the Roosevelt's a little bit of a different case because I mean, there's not really a lot that you can do um, in this case. I think some of the concerns have been about um, about local contractors because uh, they, they they're dependent on uh, local contractors coming in and out of the base to do a lot of their basic functions. Um, that, that was in part to save money and also to, to not bring in too much external things to keep the footprint relatively low. Uh, that was a deliberate choice for operation inherent resolve versus, um, operation Iraqi freedom. Um, I, I mean, the fact of the matter is, uh, these soldiers and Marines live ass to ass in these barracks. They're just, they're st- they're stuck in tents and they're they're packed on top of each other. Um, social distancing in that sort of way is pretty much impossible. Which I, I actually I witnessed some interactions um, that were some decisions by leadership that were not well received by by troops, frankly, uh, about some social distancing policies. Such as. Um, uh, the, the the chow facilities, the defects are now all all grab and go. There's there's no staying and eating, which in and of itself was fine. They 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 adapted to that reality okay. Um, but one particular interaction I witnessed was um, the uh, one of the soldiers who was in charge of the dining facilities was uh, talking to one of her colleagues about how they can get people to obey distancing um, policies because they, they put out the, 
these little signs that said, you know, like stay six feet away from each other as you're waiting in line, you know, do that. They were, everybody was, was sitting in line, but they were, um, they were standing right next to each other as they were talking about how to keep everybody else apart. Um, and I, I witnessed some of the soldiers look at it. I mean, I, I had the same thought. Everybody had the same thought. And as we left, um, and gotten our, our van, which, you know, uh, we were all packed together again, um, not observing social distancing in the van and going back to the tent where we were not going to observe social distancing. Just, they, just kind of them angrily saying, you know, what the fuck is that? You know, this is, like, if you're going to, like, we, we either do this or we don't. Like, if, right. if you're going to be, if you're going to be telling us to do a thing, you need to be doing the thing, too. Um, and it was around that time that a lot of them learned that they were not going to be allowed to go to the gym anymore. Um, because the gym was, was deemed not a healthy place. But again, th- we were having this conversation in a tent where we were all packed together. And they were saying, you know, we... We need to stay active, like being being fit as part of the job, especially because, you know, they're actively still where, where we were at. Not so much patrolling, but doing guard duty. Um, you know, the, they're it's not scout camp. This this is a deployment and they have jobs to do. And taking the gym away from them was something that made them particularly upset, which I understand. I mean, I can understand what leadership was thinking on a certain level. But I, I think part of that is also, and maybe it's because a lot of leadership have their own room. Their, their troops don't. Uh, what do you mean leadership? Like they have their own gym in terms of the quarters where people are staying. Um, I get like every once in a while, like, like some of the officers will have a chew to themselves, like generals, base commanders. They don't typically room with other people. Um, they, they don't live like, um, like the rest of the soldiers do always. Um, it, yeah, it, it just seems like, and to them, it seemed like, um, they, they were, that these, um, measures were doing that. We're making a measure just to make a measure to act like you're doing something, but it's not. Yeah. Um, but they're, it's not, yeah, they're, it's a dog and pony show, right? There's just, yeah, like, but like I said, I just don't know. There's not a lot that you can really do. Um, contractors from the outside are definitely wearing masks. Um, so when you, when you saw Iraqi contractors, definitely wearing masks. Um, people working in the dining facilities, definitely wearing masks, wearing gloves. But the reality is when you have that many people and they're also actively conducting operations. I mean, with the Roosevelt and the argument was, you know, they can, Given the circumstances, they can probably slow down operations. They can afford to do that for a little bit, but but these guys are actively deployed. And a, and a lot of, a lot of that I saw um, in her bill with the dining facilities. That was where I first ran into that uh, when I was at Taji, when I was at Altakatum, when I was at K1. I didn't see anything along those lines. I did see that the contractors were wearing masks, but that was that was about it. Out out there, um, people were going about um, doing doing their things. It, it was actually kind of weird for me because when I was in Altacatum, there was a little coffee shop there and I was able to go there, work sometimes, have some tea. And I knew that back home, nobody was going to coffee shops because all of them were closed in a weird sort of way. I had more freedom of movement 
on those bases, then I knew things were like out here and certainly but but it was only freedom of movement within this very restricted confined space so what's what's the job and how has it changed um well i don't know events but it's definitely shaped events on the ground um there was a massive um repositioning of forces um largely conducted last month um a lot of bases were handed over to iraqi forces a lot of this was planned um it it didn't get there there were some interesting reporting around it uh because a lot of this happened shortly after um a series of rockets attack on camp taji uh by um what is supposedly a new militant group and maybe we'll get into that in a little bit um I'm skeptical about how new this group is, as are a lot of people. It feels like just a continuation of what Kateb Hezbollah had been doing last year and for part of this year. Um, but it was interesting to see headlines saying that um, that these bases are being transferred and troops are leaving them in response to this attack, which wasn't really true. These I, I was I was at. Um, some of these bases while they were packing things up well before this attack. So that was something that was already planned. Uh, My own personal opinion on that is I think that that may have actually been why they launched the attack when they did to make it look more like a retreat than it actually was. Um, I I was at some of these bases as they were already packing things up and getting ready to, to transfer things out. So uh, I I can say that they were not necessarily uh, a response to these attacks. Um, I think the thing that's really thrown things more out of whack actually has been, again, though, the, the pandemic. Because one thing that I can say is more bases were transferred than were originally planned. Um, some of the soldiers that I was staying, uh, were soldiers that, um, we met, um, last year in Mosul. Um, and they, they withdrew from, from Mosul and, they had about this warning um, they were going to withdraw, so they had to pack up their their entire camp in just about a week, which which has actually meant more troops are packed, which which is sort of the plan. Uh, there was this plan to consolidate uh, troops from smaller bases into larger ones, um, but but it, a lot more people ended up showing up because a lot more um, American camps were shut down and handed over to the Iraqis. Um, than were planned. So, so has it just been kind of? Is, did you say the pandemic is just accelerating things that were already planned? Well, it, it it it's sort of yes, but also but also no because because the plan was was for this to not happen all quite so fast, and it, it's created some really interesting logistical challenges um, for them, and it's also there's also a lot of confusion about what what this means long-term because part of what happened along with that is there was a, there was a 60 day, the coalition announced that there would be a 60 day pause on, on training operations as a, in, sorry, uh, a 60 day pause on training operations with local forces um, as a result of the pandemic. Um, but we're also seeing some pretty massive reductions in the coalition. So there's, there's the U.S. forces reposition, 
positioning, but we're also seeing um, some of the other coalition partners essentially reposition out of the country at a rate much quicker than anybody was was planning. I mean, the the, the anti-ISIS coalition was never intended to be permanent. I, I don't think um, mm-hmm. these countries were necessarily committed for the long haul, nor was the United States. Um, I, while I was there, there, there was a lot of talk with um, commanders and and some of the troops on the ground just just talking about how long should this mission even exist? How long can it be? Um, I, I talked to one sergeant major who said, you know, I, I've been to this country a lot of times. You know, we left in 2011 or so we thought, and, and now we're back again. He, he said, you know, my daughter is at West Point. Uh, there's a lot of things I want to leave to my daughter, but but the, my wars is not one of them. I, I don't want her fighting the same wars that I did. Um, I, I, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of mixed feelings. There's a lot of mixed opinions going around about what this means and uh, whether this is good or bad. And, and even when you talk to the people who who do talk about not wanting to come back, there's concerns. There's still concerns about how how rapidly this is happening and whether that that jeopardizes things. It's so it's, it's interesting the way you kind of describe it is it has kind of been the mood here for me anyway, is that there's this sense that everything is both happening all at once and completely paused at the same time. Right. Which is, which is this very strange place to be in. Um, we're going to take a break real quick. You are listening to War College. You are on, we are on with producer Kevin O'Dell, who's finally returned from the Middle East. How are you doing? You good? Yeah, I'm doing. I'm doing okay. <clears throat> um, I, I probably okay. need to get some water or something. Go, go grab some water real quick while we're. Yeah, we're my just... throat's a little dry, which hopefully is nothing. Um, <laughs> yeah, that that's a fun part of all this too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what the whole t- the timeline is. I've been. Yeah, I mean, we're we're about a week into this. I, I was packed full of a, a plane full of people when I left. That was also oh, was the plane was full. Yeah, so yeah, and I, yeah, we don't necessarily need to talk about that as part of the episode, but I'll just tell you what that was like. It was terrible. Um, oh yeah, because yeah, you, so, some some of my friends follow me on Instagram, so they got the whole Instagram recap of what happened. <laughs> it was it was not great. Um, cause we, we all showed up to the airport. Um, and, and initially they said, actually, actually the flight is, is canceled until tomorrow. Um, <laughs> because, well, they didn't give an explanation, but what, what apparently had happened was the Iraqi civil administration was giving them shit. Um, but the, the, the plane itself was, um, it was a repatriate. It wasn't just Americans leaving. It was, it was everybody. Um, that basically, um, all the embassies pooled to get two two big aircraft from Qatar Airways to take us to Doha, and then the rest of us left on our respective other flights. Um, so the flight back to the states was not was definitely not full. Uh, there was there was a lot of room in that one um, from from Doha to Miami, and then I had to get had to hopscotch around from there, but. Um, no, the the planes leaving Iraq were, were packed. 
Uh, and the airport was packed because we were all stuck. So when, when they let us in and said, uh, the flight's actually not coming. And then we're like, all right, well, let's, let's get out. But the exit was on the other side of a divider at, at the Airbill airport. And they're like, oh, no, you can't leave. Um, <laughs> so, um, so everybody who was, was going to get on those planes, we were all stuck there. Um, and they were continuing to let people in and then being, and then the people who were let in were told that there was no flight and they're like, well, why'd you let me in? Can we leave? And they're like, no. <laughs> so you're just, Oh yeah. The like airport. there was, there, they, I mean, they almost had a riot on their hands. Like they, we were, we were not happy. Yeah. There, there was one guy who was like, he, he was obviously, he was a Western citizen, but he was obviously from, from Iraq cause he started, he, he was he was he was he was speaking to the people. I don't know if it was it was Kurdish or in Arabic that he was he was speaking to them in. But you know, and, and they they told him like you know, flight's not leaving. You're not. Nobody's going anywhere. And he just like slams his bags down and in English says, "Fuck Iraq, fuck this country." <laughs> I'm putting that in, by the way. Welcome back to War College. I am your host Matthew Galt. We are on with producer Kevin Nodell, who's telling us about. Uh, being in Iraq during a pandemic. Uh, so something I was wondering about is, you know, Iran is one of the countries that's been hit hardest by this. Um, I think you, you said earlier, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that they believe an Iranian college student was one of the first cases in mm-hmm. Iraq. I'm wondering how, I mean, obviously, you know, there's a lot of tension between the two countries at the moment. Um, how is the fact that Iran is one of the big vectors change? Like how, how are, how are people, how is everyone taking that? Like, how is that changing the way people view Iran or exacerbating the way people view Iran? Well, I, I, that obviously I think depends on, on your various political biases and political allegiances. Um, there was already a pretty rising tide of anti-Iranian sentiment um, in Iraq, or at least, uh, well, one, one, one thing I, it's clumsy the way that we talk about this sometimes, uh, definitely anti-Iranian state um, sentiment. I, I, I don't think that this has led people to really to necessarily hate Iranians. Uh, I, I, I'm not, I haven't seen a lot of, there, I mean, there's some. There, there, there's definitely some xenophobia, um, and there, the, we've seen a rise of that, I think, globally, um, as a result of this. But the fact of the matter is, a, a lot of Iraq really is dependent on trade with its neighbor. Um, you know, trucks come in with food and, and goods. Uh, they don't want that to stop because they 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 are also. When cross-border traffic got shut down for a little bit, um, people noticed that. Um, so it's not as though um, th- th- that's going to sever that relationship completely. Uh, one way or the other, um, th- these countries are they have they share a massive border with each other, and th- th- there's no way that that completely stops. Um, I, th- I think what's been more interesting is the way that it's affected um the way that iran has been fighting its wars and uh the way that its proxies have been behaving throughout uh this crisis um well tell me about that then well um one thing is that uh and 
it, it'll it'll be very hard, I think, to know this. And it th- this this was one thing that somebody who uh, like uh, a State Department Department official told me, and keep that in mind. And also, th- th- this is something that their intelligence indicated, but this is very hard to know for sure. Um, but they said they told me um, in early March, um, and this is something that they'd been tracking, I think, since February, that uh, they believe that they had intelligence that indicated that members of um, the Iranian Islamic um, Revolutionary Guard Corps, the the IRGC, had several cases, um, including fatal ones, um, well before a lot of us were talking about it. So there, there was a strong possibility that they and some of their proxy militias have, have been carriers um, for a while um, in both Iraq and in Syria. Uh, one, one particularly alarming thing, this was – this was around the time that um, the Battle of Idlib was kind of drawing to a close. I mean, as as COVID has really taken over um, discussion, we forget just how insane everything actually was uh, last month because right. lots of things happened. Um, Turkey and Syria almost went to war with each other in Idlib. Um, and, yep. And wow, I just realized that I haven't even thought about that in a while. But um, yeah, it's 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 this just pushes everything else out of your brain. Right. Right. But 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 it, but it, but it can't because the these things remain interrelated, which gets to the point that I was about to make. One of the, one of the fears is that the that the IGRC or IRGC and their militias played a key role in in the fight in Idlib. And uh, one of their concerns was did these paramilitaries and militias and uh, these Iranian agents, could they have introduced the virus to these very packed, very, very vulnerable population centers in Syria um, during the bombing? And yeah, that, that feels a little Alex Jonesy. Well, not, I don't mean intentionally. No, we're, okay. no, we're not talking about it. Yeah, not like that. The, the, the issue is, I, I mean, the, the, these viruses go go around, and and now the the fear is, I mean, not 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 in Alex Jonesy way, in a very we don't know what's happening sort of way. And, he, and even if they the virus did enter this population, how could we know? There's no way to test. Um, the regime and uh, the Russian military has been bombing the, their hospitals, so there's no real medical infrastructure here. And um, as this is happening, uh, these people are trying to flee, understandably and justifiably trying to flee anywhere, um, to Turkey, to other parts of Syria. Um, one of the things that they noted was that um, in northeast Syria, uh, the area is controlled by uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces, which uh, had an earlier an episode just not too long ago talking about how the outbreak has – has been affected there and how Turkey has shut off the water at a very inopportune time uh, for the people there. Um, one of the concerns is that uh, they made a very conscious choice, actually, to open their doors to refugees from from Idlib. Um, now, now that uh, the refugees from Idlib have entered that part of Syria and entered lots of other places, if Iranian-backed militias had had spread the disease – to the areas where they lived, 
are they bringing it around? Um, it, it, it leads to lots of fear, lots of uncertainty. Um, and, and also there's the concern that this is a concern also for, um, for us troops on some of these bases. Um, when I was at Al, Al um, they actually share that base or rather did. It, I, I learned that I guess this week they, they also did the transfer of authority. So they, they're leaving that base as well, but they were sharing that base actually with Katib Hezbollah. Um, Katib Hezbollah was, was on the, was near the airfield and had their own little clusters of forces on the base. Um, I saw one or two of those guys while we were on patrol. Sometimes it's hard to know who you're looking at, but, um, they were all sharing that space. And one of the issues was, I mean, I, I was in a meeting with, um, with an Iraqi general. Um, you know, we, we did the whole shaking hands and everything sort of thing. Cause you know, that's what you do. Um, but their concern is, you know, if, if these Iranian agents are interacting with Iraqi security forces, and then we're interacting with the Iraqi security forces, um, who, yeah, what, what is the chain here of, of transmission? Do we have any sense of what's happening in any of the refugee camps or the prison camps? Well, there, there was, there was pretty recently a, a riot in one of the ISIS prison camps, uh, in Syria. Uh, we do know that, um, that ISIS is trying to take advantage of, of the uncertainty here and, and some of the pauses to use this as, I mean, they've already been taking advantage of the, the tension between various groups to regroup, um, tension between Iraqi security forces and the Peshmerga tensions between the Kurds in Syria and, uh, and Turkey. They've, they've been but earlier taking earlier advantage you of mentioned that, uh, you, you kind of teased this, saying that like Islamic State isn't done, right? It, ISIS isn't isn't no. gone. And when you say they're taking advantage, like specifically, what's happening? Um, well, th- there's been, and actually, it, it's hard to say whether this is COVID related or just the general trends. There has been a spike in in attacks and some of what in Iraq are called the disputed areas, um, areas that are between the Peshmerga and uh, between the Iraqi security forces and the popular mobilization forces um, kind of little no man's lands where neither of them go because they don't want to invite a firefight with the other side, but create really good sanctuaries for ISIS to regroup and, and operate um, not too long after U S forces handed um, the K one base over to um to the Iraqis, there was a pretty major uh, firefight. Um, Eleven Iraqi troops were wounded, uh, two killed. Uh, this this was yesterday. Um, I know that they had to call in air support and call in a lot of ground forces. I know the official line was, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. There weren't that many ISIS guys, but some of the some of the guys who talked to local media out there said, you know, they the troops who went to the village were attacked from from multiple sides. It seemed like there was, there was a lot of militants. They, they seemed pretty organized. It seems like, like there might be more here going on. Um, 
I, there, there were a few local people who I talked to who said, I, I wonder if uh, this is because the Americans left K1. Um, could be, could not be. It's not like, I mean, when I was at K1, everybody was kind of staying on their base. It's not like uh, the presence of American forces in the region really was doing that much, at least, at least when it comes to ground mm-hmm. forces. Um, so, so it's kind of hard to say one way or the other. The, the entire situation in both Iraq and Syria is immensely confusing right, right now. Hence, so, hence the very roundabout nature of this conversation right, right now, because it's like you said, it, it's, it seems like everything is stopped while everything is also happening simultaneously, which is kind of the feeling that everybody out there has. You know, every, everybody's stopped, everybody's going, nobody knows what's happening. Um, when I was there, Patriot missiles arrived at several of, uh, several of the places, uh, across Iraq, including one of the places I was at, um, you know, they, they'd been asking for Patriot missiles for a long time. So those are there now. Um, the state department just put out, um, a reward for the current head of Katib Hezbollah. So that's not done yet. Um, the, the New York times got a hold of a memo that, from the Pentagon that that was to the coalition out there asking them to come up with a plan to destroy Katib Hezbollah. Uh, they also found the memo from general white, the, the chief officer saying that he had grave concerns about such a plan given, you know, including the fact that there's a pandemic going on uh, that troops are trying to reorg like to reposition and such a campaign would probably require a lot more troops. We could risk a war with Iran and also, Katib Hezbollah operates as the 45th Brigade of uh, the Popular Mobilization Forces. It's part of the Iraqi government. So a military campaign against Katib Hezbollah would be a military campaign against part of their ho- their host country. Um, that was a, that was a very long list of just confusing things that I just spat out. But I think that gets to to where we're at right now. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, yes. So to add fuel to that fire. Again, you'd kind of teased up at the top a new militant group. Yes, um, kind of. We don't right. know. <laughs> um, I, I, I've already forgotten uh, what they call themselves. I think it was uh, like the League of Revolutionaries. We'll, we'll fact check this uh, on this in post. Um, the people I talked to about. So it, it is a. A, Sh- a Shia group. Um, and interestingly, as much as it, it's being touted as a new group, one, one thing about them is that they are not part of the popular mobilization forces. So they don't have a legal status like, like Kateb mm-hmm. Hezbollah would. Um, but they also cite um, the death of Abu Mahdi al Muhandis and uh, Soleimani as being the reasons why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and they have a flag that looks very axis of resistancy. So it, it, it this whole, <laughs> it, it, this group is obviously Iranian affiliated is obviously, um, connected to these. And I, I, t- one of the things I, an officer who I talked to about that shortly after the attacks, uh, he, he was a guy who was. I mean, I had this conversation in Taji. Um, I, I had a stop over there um, for about a, a day and a half. Um, 
the, the way that he described that group is he said, you know, Iran is creating splinter groups for right. us to target, uh, to, to, to get us into like his assessment, his personal assessment was that, um, that this was Iran trying to further bait, uh, the United States into actually getting into one of these fights. Um, it's it's hard to say to what degree this is directed from the top. Um, the the consensus among a lot of people is that this new group is just Katib Hezbollah trying to use a deniable asset. But at the same time, there there has been splintering among the PMF and inside Katib Hezbollah. You have seen some of the PMF factions fighting each other amongst themselves a little bit more. In no small part because of the deaths of um, of Soleimani and uh, and Al Muhandis, um, those were two very powerful personalities, two very powerful mm-hmm. figures, um, and it, we actually have seen that um, their their successors have not been as effective in enforcing loyalty, um, and, and also don't necessarily have the influence with the Iraqi government that uh, their predecessors did. Um, Soleimani's um, successor, whose name escapes me because nobody cares who he is. Um, I mean, obviously it's important, but I mean that I think there's there's right. some it truth to that the, the, uh, because it like the he's, truth of it, how big Soleimani was, right? Like this was yeah, like like yeah. you're not him. He 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 was recent. I mean, he I'm uh, I I mean, look, I don't claim to be a regional expert. Um, because I'm not, but he was recently in Iraq, uh, and he, his reception was pretty chilly with some of the people who he, he was expecting to be able to get on board with things. Um, you know, th- things have changed, but it's a tough act th- to follow. You are seeing these things. It's a tough act to huh? follow. It, it is. Well, it is. Well, I mean, he. I mean, Sol- Soleimani yep. was the guy, and you know, and I think though I, I think this also was one of the, one of the the problems of of the leadership style was a lot of it really was based on personal patronage. It, it was based on personal ties um, without him and without a guy like Muhandis, it, it, it is hard to get everybody on board the way that they were before. Um, it, it's different now. And it's, it's not entirely clear what the line of succession is, who's in charge now. Um, it's created a lot of opportunities for for other groups and other individuals to try to try to assert themselves. So we are seeing the PMF fighting amongst itself a little bit more, and we are seeing Iranian-backed groups trying to curry favor. Uh, it so it's 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 hard to say what is happening and to what degree this is part of anybody's plan, and to what degree these things maybe are just happening right. on their own um i i though like i said with the timing of of the taji attacks it does make me and again not a regional expert um not not going to claim that i have any particular knowledge but it does seem like that one was more directed it does seem like that one was possibly more planned um to, to strike the united states at a moment when they no doubt knew that the Americans were were getting ready to leave um, some of those installations because the, the 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 Americans would have been telling Iraqi forces by then that um, they were leaving. And as we know at this point, anything Iraqi forces know um, 
for better or worse, the Iranians know, um, given how deeply Iranian agents have, have penetrated the Iraqi government and the Iraqi security apparatus. So, I mean, just the general sense that I'm getting picture I'm getting from you is that um, everything's a giant mess and the pandemic has just made things worse and more complicated. I, I mean, uh, I, I, w- I would say that that is an accurate assessment of of what's happening best that I can describe it. Um, how long were you? Can we move on to slightly more personal? Yeah, absolutely. Uh um, how long were you there beyond when you were supposed to be? It's kind of a blur and I'm not looking at a calendar right now, but, um, a little over a week, I'd say. Oh, it felt like it was, I felt, I felt like it um, recorded, uh, uh, in the outros that you were stuck in Iraq like three or four times. Is it just that, is a time that twisted right now that I, I've completely lost a lost sense of what's going on? Possibly. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know. Um, I th- though also, I I mean th- there was there was a time when I was stuck on th- th- there was the times when I was stuck in the bases though not necessarily at that point I was not yet stuck in Iraq mm-hmm. necessarily because uh, the airport hadn't been closed yet. Um, but th- then the airport did close and I was was stuck there. Um, a, f- a few things happened. First was when um, I learned that that my flight was right. canceled, um, which and it was it was interesting because I, I got a message from from my airline and I, I looked at my itinerary and my but my itinerary hadn't changed. A message said that new restrictions had led to changes in my schedule, but my itinerary was unchanged. I was like, well. Well, why would I get that message if uh, if if nothing had changed? I remember telling one of the Marines I was with, like, so either the message I got was wrong or the itinerary was wrong. He's like, I would get in touch with the airline because um, I have a feeling your itinerary is wrong. Um, he was right. Uh, my itinerary was wrong because the airline that I was supposed to leave the country on had canceled, had decided to cancel all service to the country. So my flight wasn't canceled. My airline was canceled. Um, oh, that's okay. Yeah. Um, that, that was around the time that also, um, not, not long after that, uh, the airport was closed for, um, initially they said that they were going to close the airport for 48 hours. Um, then they closed it for 48 more hours. Um, then they announced it was going to be closed till April 11th. Um, it, it was at that point that I realized that it was not going to, it was going to be closed for much right. longer till yeah. than April 11th. Uh, th- this was also around the time that, um, the city of Erbil had also announced a 48 hour curfew, which turned into a 73 hour curfew, which turned into a month long curfew, which I, I believe now is supposed to end sometime in May, maybe. Um, it, yeah, the, the, uh, I, I was realizing that, um, end dates didn't mm-hmm. exist. Um, so we had to, to make different sorts of plans at that point. Um, but, uh, I, the, my, my plan at that point was to get back to, um, my friend's apartment and her bill where the rest of my stuff was and, to to figure things out there, uh, where there was a reliable internet connection and, um, 
comfortable place to sleep and um you were allowed to go and get actual food at the supermarket if nothing else um but um when i got back to uh Erbil, i mean I, I i was i was i was also trying to get uh flights um back to um back nor- to the northern part of the country at, at some point the coalition kind of lost track of me and forgot about me so uh i was kind of just drifting around bases and trying to get on whatever flight that i could uh, i had to rely on uh, the canadian air force because they didn't have they they weren't as strict about paperwork um on who they let on on their planes on the bases um the americans wanted a lot more i i had a We'll talk about uh, some of the specifics off the air because it's it's stupid, but uh, I, I don't necessarily want to want to cause too much drama because I, I am very appreciative of uh, the degree to which I was helped by a lot of officers and personnel. Um, but but it was a very very weird situation, and when I finally got back to Erbil, what which you what usually would have happened when you got back to Erbil is, um the army would have get, would have given you a ride back to either to um to the airport taxis or back to your hotel or apartment or wherever you were staying at but when i got there i learned that um that just a few days prior the the us troops had been given orders that they weren't going into the city anymore uh so they couldn't get me a ride back into the city um and um the cab port was closed because most of the cabs weren't running anymore. So I was stuck at the base, despite the fact that my friend's apartment was seven right. minutes away. Uh, and I, I, w- I was there for several weeks. Uh, I, I did, I did allude to uh, some of the weirdness with the dining hall. Um, the soldiers who were frustrated about that. I had some trouble at first getting food because essentially my embed was, was over. Um, and when I tried to get, but, uh, I, I was taken in by, um, by one, two, four, um, one of the units I'd covered and I was staying with, um, with some members of their scout platoon. Um, I went to go get food one of the times and, uh, you know, you have to show your cat card or your military ID. I had my press card, uh, which helped me out in some places, but, uh, you know, they said, we don't accept this here. Like you don't like that, that doesn't work. I said, well, all right, well, can I, can I leave the base? I'm like, well, no. Um, you know, I, I kind of, I, I, I kind of told me, you know, like, you know, you, you can either let me leave the base or you can feed me, but you know, I, <laughs> so you're stuck in the novel catch 22. Um, sort of that were like that. And I was also kind of Tom Hanks in the terminal, um, it, yeah, th- like that kind of thing. Uh, I, I was able to get a letter from, from an officer that said that I was allowed to eat or that, that he would take responsibility for me and say that he was, I, I think it was a, I don't remember what all uh, the letter said. I'm keeping that letter though. <laughs> um, um, but it, 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 yeah, it was very weird. Uh, it, it I, I didn't exist. Um, I, I, I was not really an embed so more anymore. I was more of a stowaway. Um, but yeah, I, I just kind of existed. Um, so soldiers drove me where I needed to get, um, went to the PX to go get some blankets and some pillows so that I could sleep because I, I, 
I, I, I didn't have, yeah, they, they also wouldn't let me stay in the normal billet. Um, cause usually they have transient, um, bedding and, and housing, uh, KBR takes care of that, but they also wouldn't, wouldn't let me do that. Um, <laughs> cause I didn't exist. Um, it, it, it was very, it was very strange, uh, that last week. That's very surreal, but you're home now. Yep. And I assume you are now you're, you're in that position where you've traveled from, uh, from another country. And so you have to stay inside for two weeks. That is, uh, that is what I am doing period. right now. Um, it's, um, it's not particularly exciting. Um, I'm trying to get as much work done as I can. Um, doing the work from home thing like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate working from home. Um, really? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I like to have the option to, to work from home, but I don't like to have to, uh, there's a re yeah, yeah. I, I, there's a reason why I work at a co space back in Tacoma, um, and, and work out of coffee shops. I hate having my home space and my workspace be the, the same thing. I'm glad, I'm glad that other people are starting to, to know what I meant by that now. Um, as I've seen other people talk about it, yes, work from home is not as cool as you thought it was. <laughs> See, I'm such a, I mean, I'm a huge introvert, so I'm living my best life. Yeah. Uh, right now. And like, it's the extroverts in my life that are, that are making me a little bit crazy. Uh, but other than that, you know, things are okay. Yeah. Other than other than the horrifying pandemic raging outside my my door, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, things are fairly up there, you know. And uh, we don't have it as bad here as as you do in Washington State. Right? Yeah. Well, I'm in Oregon right now, um, but yeah, well, so, so the thing for me, I like, I, I'm kind of an introvert too, um, but mm-hmm. for, I mean, for me, it's 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 a question of space. I hate having my work. Though also, it's also been because I don't have. Like if I had my own house and I had like a designated office room, right? Um, I feel like I would actually be perfectly okay with work from home. But um, I've always had roommates, pretty much. Um, working from home when you have roommates is not cool. Um, no. And having your bedroom also be your office um, is horrible. Um, yeah when your life is just contained to such a small, cause like too much of your life is, is taking place in one room. Um, that's something I don't really, really care for. If that makes sense. No, that makes total sense. Um, and I've been, it, it's been not too bad, but yeah, it, it's affected my workflow since I've been back. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm living in my parents' guest room. Um, and work like, which is also my office, which is also kind of my quarantine. I mean, it's not like I'm under super strict quarantine out here. Um, it's because right. I don't, I don't live in an urban or my parents don't live in an urban area. So it's not, I did go for a walk, um, Sunday. Um, I wore a mask and everything, but I don't know that it really matters out where we are. Um, Yeah. Well, Kevin Nodell, thank you for coming on to War College, the show that you produce, and telling us about your journey and what's going on in Iraq. Glad to be here. That's it for this week, War College listeners. War College is me, Matthew Galt, and Kevin KJK Nodell. We are glad that he is back home safe. 
If you like the show, you can follow us on Twitter at MJGAULT and at KJKNodell. We will be back next week with more stories from behind the front lines. Stay safe until then.